Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast where uh, we talk about nutty space stuff. And uh, joining me as always is astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. How are you doing, fellow nut? Ah, oh, freezing. I'm freezing. I, I know people in uh, the, the Northern Hemisphere who are going through summer will laugh at me because their winters are so much more severe than ours because they get, you know, snow. Um, but we had minus seven here last Sunday, which is the coldest on record. And that broke the record that had been broken only two days before that had broken a record from 2002. So we, um, we've had a real cold spell. There was ice on the, on the lakes at the golf course, which has never been seen before in the history of Australia. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just dreadfully cold. You were here and you didn't even say hello. No, well, no, we were passing through very rapidly. So just for our um, international listeners, uh, Andrew, minus 7 Celsius is 19.4 degrees Fahrenheit, just so that everybody is kept happy. Yeah, and now they're laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, when you, trick them, right when you trick them with Celsius, that's fine, <laughs> because they go, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty cold. But yeah. <laughs> no, but the thing is, uh, we, as you know, we've just come back from Europe and um, when we got to England, we were freezing and they, they thought it was pro- positively balmy. Yeah, so yeah. it's all relative, isn't it? It is indeed. That's yeah. right. And when it got I'm to just... 21, they were freaking out because it was so hot and we just laughed. Well, shoes on the other foot now. Now, Fred, today we're going to be talking about uh, some new moons that have been discovered um, at Jupiter, which uh, surprises me, might surprise a few people. Uh, And something we've alluded to a couple of times in recent weeks is this upcoming uh, lunar eclipse, which um, should be pretty exciting. It's going to be quite a spectacular one. And blazar jets. Someone sent in a question about those because of all the uh, discussions we've had in recent times about black holes. So we'll get on to that. But the new moons of Jupiter, what gives, Fred? Um, Complete accident, actually. Uh, Not the moons themselves, but their discovery. Um, So it's one of these cases where astronomers were looking for something else and and they found something different from what Mm. they were looking for. So this is with a telescope uh, in Chile called the Blanco Telescope. It's very similar in size and shape, actually, to our Anglo-Australian telescope, the 3.9-metre telescope at Siding Spring Observatory in northwestern New South Wales, not that far from where you live. Um, But the Blanco telescope is, as I said, a similar telescope in Chile, and it has this um, extraordinary wide-angle digital camera. So it's a bit like the camera in your phone, only about a thousand times bigger. Um, And that's used actually for all kinds of survey work. And in particular, the astronomers who were using it, uh, a group from the Carnegie Institution, were... um, looking for very distant solar system asteroids, things out in the, the Kuiper belt there beyond the orbit of Neptune, the place we, things we call trans-Neptunian objects. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there's a whole 
belt of asteroids out there. There's about a thousand of them known. <clears throat> Pluto is one of the bigger ones. Um, it's one of the reasons why Pluto was reclassified as a planet, uh, as a dwarf planet, uh, back in 2006. So the, they, they were carrying out a survey looking for these things, uh, but suddenly realized that um, the planet Jupiter was not very far away from their field of view. And they suddenly started picking up moons of Jupiter, uh, moons of Jupiter that were previously unknown. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are really interesting ones. So they, they've discovered 12 new ones. Um, that brings the total number of moons of Jupiter that are currently known to 79. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, it is a lot. Yeah, when I was when I was a lad, we thought Jupiter had 12 moons. That was it. That was all, yeah. all new, new with the very best telescopes in the world. Now we've discovered, you know, 12 more on top of uh, top of 67 to bring the total to 79. Uh, but they're really interesting ones because they first of all, uh, most of them orbit a long way from Jupiter. They've got uh, periods of rotation. Uh, I beg your pardon. Periods of revolution about. Uh, about Jupiter, let me get the terminology right, um, of about a year. In fact, some of them more than a year. So uh, really slow moving objects quite distant from their parent planet. Um, but an another group of them, or one of the significant groups of these moons, are in what are called um, retrograde orbits. That means they're going backwards. <clears throat> oh, uh, really? Yeah. So uh, in the solar system, pretty well everything, not entirely everything but most things if you looked uh, looked at them from above the north pole they'd be going anti-clockwise that's mm. the preferred direction of the solar system and we've talked about why that should be before that that's the the fossil rotation of the swirling gas cloud from which the solar system formed but um several of these i think something like nine of them are going around in what we call prograde orbits uh, a big part what we call retrograde orbits which are which are backwards um, and that means they're going clockwise. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but clockwise is backwards in the world of astronomy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but intriguingly, there is one little fella, and this uh, object is no more than a kilometre in diameter. So it's probably diameter is probably the wrong word for it. It's probably just you know a lump of a, a lump of rock, um, which is it's it's in a, a prograde orbit. What that means is it's going the right direction. It's going uh, anti-clockwise. But um, it's right in the middle of this bunch that are going the other way. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's named Valetudo. Uh, Valetudo. Uh, in, this is um, Roman mythology. It's one of the daughters of Jupiter and the Roman goddess of hygiene and personal health. Hey. <laughs> that just proves beyond reasonable doubt they're running out of names. Yeah, well, yeah. It proves that the, it proves that the Romans had too much time on that. That's true, too. <laughs> Who can we worship this week? Oh, what about hygiene? Let's go yeah, for that. Yeah, hygiene and personal health. Next week we'll, we'll do toothbrushes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Well, that's a good one. Um... <laughs> so um, the bottom line with uh, Valetudo is that it might not last very long uh, yes. because it's it's, it's in the middle of this swarm of things coming the other way. So and there's a chance that, I mean, you said it was quite small. There's a chance that it was bigger at some stage by the sound exactly, of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, that's the theory that perhaps all we're seeing is the, the last bit of debris of something that was much bigger mm. and basically collided with these these objects coming the other way. Wow. So, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Um, we, we 
you know, are, are intrigued to find that uh, Jupiter uh, is still producing surprises. When I saw this news story the other day, Andrew, I was uh, first sight. I thought oh, this must be from the Juno spacecraft. It, you know, it must be a discovery made by Juno, but it's not. It's a. It's made by Earth-based telescopes, and I think it's pretty neat that a telescope in Chile can spot something a kilometre across at a distance of half a billion kilometres away. Um, it's, uh, it tells you just how sensitive modern uh, astronomical detectors are and how effective they are at picking up these distant things. And of course, they're detected through their motion through space. That's how, that's how you, you find objects uh, like, well, solar system objects generally tend to move in front of the background of stars, mm. albeit not very fast. Uh, but the, it was the motion of these moons that picked them out as, as uh, moons of Jupiter rather than just, you know, stars in the background sky. And, and yet Juno, which is right there, didn't see any of them. But then again... No, partly because it's not looking for them. It's, well, it's, yes. And it focused would have, very firmly on the planet itself is, is Juno. Yeah, it would have failed the gorilla test. Uh, <laughs> Do you know the gorilla test? Just remind me. This was a test that I actually fell for oh, it that's myself. Right. It's um, where where uh, you, you're told to watch something that's happening <laughs> that's in front right. of you. Yeah. And while this is going on, a guy walks through in a gorilla suit. And then they say, did you see the guy in the gorilla suit? And you, you say no. And it yeah. just it shows how selective your brain is interp in interpreting data right in front of your face. And I watched this on a documentary on TV. And um, when they said to the audience that was in the studio, how many saw the gorilla? About three people put their hands up. And then they yeah. showed the video again. And I went, oh, my God, that's yeah. a gorilla. But I never saw so, it. So obvious. That's right. So Juno yeah. failed the gorilla test. I have seen that, um, yes. But, uh, yeah, have they given names to all of these moons? Um, I'm not sure about most of them. Um, normally with moons like this, you know, little objects, you give them, you basically give them numbers. Um, the Astronomical Union's going to be going crazy. They haven't been yeah, as busy they, they for a long will. time. Yeah. I haven't seen the <laughs> list of, um, of, of the, the other moons. But um, well, just, just going back to um, maybe their origin, it seems uh, very likely that... Captured? Uh, Captured? Yes, exactly. Oh, and I I'm need getting to better no and better at this. I need to I'd say no more. <laughs> because, so, because you know, the group that are going retrograde, going backwards, they're almost certainly captured objects, objects mm. that Jupiter swept up as it's um, been passing through clouds of cosmic debris, of which there's not very much left because it swept most of it up. And that's, uh, just, that's, right. that's, that's one of the doctrines of space, don't mess with Jupiter. Uh, I think that's right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Get too close and that's the end. Yeah. yeah, there's a well, signal coming from Jupiter there. You can probably hear it. Yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll probably uh, learn more about this as they uh, now uh, arrange studies of these objects because... Uh, and, and how many more might there be? That's, that's yeah, the Yeah, well, that, that's the other question. That's right. We, um, you know, the, the, as, as instruments get more sensitive, we'll find more of them. It's like uh, the Earth you know, potentially damaging asteroids. As instruments get more sensitive, we find more of them. Yeah, and I suppose I'm going to preempt an audience question here because someone will say, could this be how the rings formed? So could this be how the rings formed? Um, yes, possibly, because the, the rings of both Jupiter and Saturn, actually all the giant planets have got rings. Of course, the most prominent ones are Saturn's. Jupiter's are a bit faint, as are the others. But um, they they are almost certainly... I mean, the, the jury's still out, but I think it's fairly, fairly uh, well 
um, you know, it's, it's a, the, 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 the standard model that these formed from something that got too near and the tidal forces of, of the respective giant planets just pulled them to pieces. Mm. Uh, and so you get this, this ring of debris. What's interesting about the rings, though, and particularly at rings of Saturn, is how... Um, how narrow they are in a sort of vertical direction because the the gravity of of the planet just pulls them into this into this shape uh, where they are like a blade of debris fly, yeah. flying around. They're only a hundred meters thick or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, it makes some beautiful pictures though. Mm. They do indeed, absolutely. All right, we'll keep an eye on the new moons of Jupiter and who knows what else they'll find uh, by accident in the not too distant future. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Next, Fred, we're going to talk about an upcoming eclipse, uh, which has got a lot of people excited uh, because uh, I've seen some press reports suggesting it will be the longest and reddest blood moon lunar eclipse for a long, long time. But uh, yeah, it's it, it certainly got people chattering. That's, uh, that's certainly uh, a definite. But uh, what, what is special about this one? If anything, yeah, it is special. No, you're quite right, and for for the reasons that you've you've said. So, what happens in a lunar eclipse? Well, the moon passes through the shadow of the Earth, which is streaming out behind us in the direction opposite to the sun. Um, the, the 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 shadow of the Earth uh, at the distance of the moon is roughly three times the Earth's sorry, three times the moon's diameter. So, the moon itself is a quarter of the Earth's diameter. But um, the, the, the 
the deepest part of the shadow uh, at the distance of the moon is about three times the moon's diameter. And that's because the shadow is, is actually a cone. It's a very, very long, thin cone. And that's because the sun is not a point source of light. If the sun was a point source, the shadow would just be parallel. But because mm. the sun's got its own angular diameter, then the, the, the shadow is a cone. So at the distance of the moon, the moon goes through a shadow that's more or less three times as big as the moon itself is. Usually when we have eclipses, the moon sort of either skims through the shadow off-center or sometimes it, it, you know, it, it only barely skims the shadow. But this time it goes pretty well right through the middle. And that's what makes it a very significant, significant eclipse because, uh, as you can easily figure out, if it's going through the middle of the shadow, it's going to be one of the longest eclipses uh, possible. And so this is uh, uh, that sort of thing. I think it's about three hours altogether. It's quite, uh, quite lengthy. So... Um, we will see this uh, in Sydney and probably just to give you times for Eastern Australia, which is the easiest way to do it, even though I know many of our listeners are spread all around the world, but all of you have access to local internet services that will tell you exactly what the local times and local circumstances of your eclipse is. GMT, GMT plus 10. GMT plus 10 hours, that's right. That's yep. correct, yeah. So... Um, that uh, I know that because of jet lag. Yes, of course. <laughs> Which you're still suffering from. No, I'm pretty good now. Took took, <laughs> took over two weeks. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's a, it's a lengthy thing, especially coming back this way from from uh, west to east. Anyway, never mind. Yeah. In Sydney, the eclipse is uh, in the small hours of the morning of the 28th of July, which is next Saturday week. Uh, our time as we speak at the moment. Uh, so 28th of July, small hours of the morning. Uh, and in Sydney, in fact, the eclipse starts the bit that's important, what we call the partial eclipse, when the uh, moon starts going into the deepest part of the Earth's shadow. That starts at 4.24 a.m. Um, and totality, which is when the moon is completely within the Earth's shadow, but not yet in the centre of the shadow. That's at 5.30 a.m. Uh, and then the maximum eclipse, 6.21 a.m. Sydney time, by which time it's kind of starting to get light. So yes, it, is. Um, yeah. it, it will not be quite so obvious. But it will. It should be um, a, a pretty dramatic blood moon in those small hours of the, of the morning of the 28th. Um, uh, elsewhere in the world, you've got probably more convenient views. Uh, it looks as though... Uh, in Africa, in particular, it will be during the probably before midnight. It'll be late in the in the evening, but certainly uh, not anywhere near as inconvenient as it's going to be here in Australia. Mm. So, so it should we'll, be a good eclipse. Yeah. So this will be in our we western sky, I assume. Uh, indeed, that's right. Yeah. Uh, because the sun is rising. Uh, yes, the sun is rising. That's correct. So it's yeah. in the western sky. The moon's setting. So. Um, just to, to give a quick rundown, it's it's visible pretty well throughout the world, actually, one way or another, apart from North America, I'm afraid. Uh, the North American content, continent and Greenland won't see anything of this eclipse, but Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, South America, and, and of course, Australasia will get good views. So... Okay. Uh, uh, um, assuming the skies are clear, that's always the caveat with these things. There's no point in going looking for a for a blood moon if, if there's thick cloud overhead because it's a bit of a waste. Now, well, we've had some fairly clear nights uh, this month, uh, being being winter and <clears throat> um, it's the driest time of the year. So we have a lot of clear nights and they get 
yeah. rather frosty, as you know. But uh, if this was a weekday, I'd be able to get up and um, and see this because I, I go and do a radio program uh, every every day, and, uh, and that's about the time I'm out and about. So. Um, but it's a Saturday, and I get I, I sleep in on a Saturday, so I, I, I'm not sure, given the current conditions here, that I'm going to be struggling up to have a look at this one. Uh, do you know? Neither am I, mm. <laughs> and that's just sheer laziness. I'll tell you though, um, uh, Andrew, there was a total eclipse of the moon in I think it was January. It was earlier in the year, uh, and I was night observing then on the telescope, uh, and. The, the skies were clear where I was at, uh, up at Coonabarabran, uh, and it was really very spectacular. And what, what's really, I, I guess, striking about it um, was I had to, you know, in the middle of the eclipse, um, I had to wander from one building to another. And just walking across the, the, a landscape very familiar to me, uh, at, at a time when you know it's full moon, and the full moon is in the sky, but it is blood red, and all the stars are shining. It is a very peculiar experience. It, the, the moon take, takes on a, uh, an almost ethereal quality. And it's sort of there, but it's abnormal. And it mm. does look really freaky. Um, and, and just the, the, the fact that the sky is dark and so the stars are all visible, that, that really enhanced the effect of that. And, and you, know, you, you know what's going on. So imagine how the ancient people would have reacted to something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes. They would have we, thought uh, there, was, there was an apocalypse coming or something. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And this one, this one's um, going to last, as you said, uh, quite some time, which makes it extra special. Um, just one final thought. Um, do, can we learn anything by observing a lunar eclipse? I know we, we can learn a lot about the sun by looking at a solar eclipse, but it, does it translate the same way with a lunar eclipse or is it just pretty? Uh, no, you can do. And um, in fact, uh, it's a really good way of sensing the condition of the Earth's atmosphere, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Mm. Because what's happening, um, that blood red colour comes about because the Earth has an atmosphere. And so the light of the sun is scattered through the Earth's atmosphere around the edge of the disk of the Earth, if, if I can put it that way. Um, and what you, the red light that you see on the moon itself is the kind of sum total of a, an entire, basically one, one sort of hemisphere almost of the Earth. It's not quite, it's not a hemisphere. It's the, that ring of light around the Earth that you would see if you're standing on the moon. But it's a fairly global phenomenon. So if there's lots of dust in the atmosphere or um, you know, lots of cloud in the atmosphere, that will affect the, uh, the color and intensity of the of the blood moon, so people do study it. Scientists do study it and look for some of these uh, these phenomena. Uh, speaking of which, um, Mars is quite spectacular in the sky at the moment. You can see the redness of that planet. I believe there's a dust storm on Mars at the present time, which is making it so much more vivid in our night sky. I've uh, seen it the last few nights. It's, it stands out like, um, well, I won't use the Australian vernacular, but it, uh, it stands out pretty significantly. It, it's, yeah, it's hard to miss. And in fact, it's, um, it's now, I think it's now brighter than Jupiter, which is the other bright planet in the sky. Uh, Jupiter's um, almost overhead. Mars is rising in the east in the, in the early evening. And Saturn is between them. So you've got a brilliant show. In fact, if you, if you look out fairly early in the night, uh, Venus is setting on the other side of the sky. It's mm. uh, an absolute bonanza for planet watchers. Absolutely, and, indeed, yeah. Uh, and, planets. <laughs> and, and you won't have any trouble finding Mars at the moment. I mean, it's just 
really lit up like a like a the top of a Christmas tree. Vivid red coal. It is indeed. Yes, uh, we'll uh, probably talk about these things again in the not uh, too distant future here on Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, of course. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, and this seems to be a bit of a trend for us now, we uh, we talked about something the other day and got avalanched in questions. So <laughs> uh, the, the topic uh, is black holes, and we were talking last uh, week about um, being able to see one for the first time. We know they exist. Uh, all the mathematics and evidence suggests that they are there beyond reasonable doubt. But we have never actually seen one, but it looks like we were getting pretty close. I don't know if that's happened yet. I did see a story the other day that suggested we might, but they might have been alluding to the possibility rather than the fact that it's happened yet. You might know. But it's prompted a question from um, Mark Bealey. Uh, Hi, Fred and Andrew. Here's my question. If nothing can escape a black hole, how do those blazar jets manage to escape and how do they form in the first place? Many thanks. Love your informative and entertaining podcast. Thank you, Mark. We appreciate the, uh, uh, the, the positive attitude and the, uh, the great question, Fred. Really good question. It is a good question, yeah, and it's it's one that crops up quite a bit. Um, but specifically in this case, it's referring to... Uh, a new story, actually, that we didn't really cover. Um, it's, it is connected with black holes, um, and it's some um, neutrinos, which are subatomic particles, that have been detected by a marvellous uh, neutrino detector at the South Pole called IceCube. And IceCube is a one cubic kilometre array of detectors that are looking for these the flashes of light that are produced by these subatomic particles as they interact with the ice. <clears throat> and so um, IceCube has detected... Uh, a burst of neutrinos and their source has been traced back to an object that we call a blazar um, to rhyme with quasar yes Bla- Bla- blazars when when i was a young astronomer back in the in the 1970s uh, we called them blac objects blac is is the uh, it's the name of what was thought to be a star a variable star in fact that's the nomenclature in, in the constellation of Lacerti, which is why lac is the abbreviation and bl lac objects were weird things that seem to vary in brightness and uh, emit a lot of energy and we now know that they're sort of related to quasars um, but slightly less violent and uh, what we believe is happening here is that there is a supermassive black hole and these can be of the order of a billion times the mass of the sun. They're very big ones uh, in the center of a galaxy. And that black hole is absolutely gobbling up material uh, around it. And so that's where the, you know, this is where Mark's question comes from. Nothing can escape a black hole. And yet we've got um, something that is emitting copious amounts of radiation. Mm. Uh, in fact, that radiation uh, a lot of it is beamed from the from the poles of the black hole, the rotation poles of the black hole. So, what's happening here is you've got a huge disk of debris uh, swirling around the black hole, and in doing that, it is highly energized because of collisions uh, that causes it to emit X-rays, and that's actually how we know that the, this accretion disk is present because it it emits all this radiation and radio waves. Um, but near the centre, near where the, the, the stuff disappears down the plug hole, if I can put it that way, you encounter a region where 
there are incredibly strong magnetic fields. And these are generated by the black hole itself. So, uh, you know, forget the magnetic field of the Earth. These are hugely more powerful magnetic fields. And it's the effect of the magnetism that beams out the, the, the jets of um, material from the north and south poles of this swirling disk. Um, and uh, th they act like particle accelerators because of the magnetism. Um, and basically, the, 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 the disk material, some of it is not going in the black hole. Some of it's being focused out into space. Uh, and actually, if that jet of material points towards the Earth, then you've got a blazar, basically. <laughs> That's ah. how it works. Um, the, so the jet of material is is directed in the Earth's direction. You see all this radiation, and it's coming from things that are being um, changed in their direction by the magnetic field around the around the uh, black hole. So something similar happens actually um, on on a smaller scale, Andrew, with um, with neutron stars, things called pulsars, which are jets of material that come from the poles of neutron stars. Neutron stars are not black holes, but they're not very far off becoming black holes. They're the size of a city, but with the mass of a, a star in them. That's so they're just, incredibly dense. That's right. I just so struggle to comprehend that kind of um, situation. Yeah, we, we, we're not really equipped to do it. Um, no, right. it it's, and, and I think another similar thing is uh, something the size of a coin that weighs as much as a car and that sort of stuff that, yes, you that's know, right. It's, yeah. it's just a weirdism that I suppose because we've we've lived on Earth and everything is sort of relative to where we are, we constantly think in terms of what we know. And yes, so when someone says, well, if you're on this planet, this is what happens. You just, you, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Very different. Um, so neutron stars um, also have these magnetic fields. They also beam material out near their magnetic poles. And if the neutron stars are rotating, what you get is this sort of um, uh, lighthouse effect of the beam. Uh, and that is what causes pulsars. Um, and pulsars are very topical for us at the moment because the discoverer of pulsars, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, is in Australia as we speak. Yeah. Uh, she's giving a talk for us tonight, which by the time most of your listeners hear, that will be too late to book in for. But check her out on the web. She's a very distinguished uh, person. She is the dame of the British Empire. Wow. So a very, very, very high accolade indeed for the discovery of pulsars. So that's how the blazars work. It's a similar process, but on a much more giant scale than with the with the pulsars um, and if you've got this as i said if you've got the stream of material being accelerated by the magnetic fields pointing towards earth that becomes a cosmic beacon uh, which we call a blazar we used to call them be a lack objects but blazars sound a lot more yeah. a lot interesting <laughs> they, they do indeed yeah i still struggle to understand these things sometimes but um, I hope Mark we managed to answer your question uh, adequately and uh, we certainly do invite questions we try to get to them all uh, sometimes they come in um, great big truckloads and <laughs> it's hard to nail them all down but uh, we, we do try to pick the ones that are topical enough or uh, there's something in the news about them at the at the right moment so um, hence hence uh, your 15 minutes of fame there mark well actually no seven minutes seven seconds but uh, so we still owe you we still owe you some time <laughs> uh, but please uh, keep in touch with us via facebook or twitter or uh, any of those uh, platforms um, that that we were on uh, we really do appreciate the feedback as well. Sometimes people just message us, Fred, to say hi, which we, we also appreciate. And I do try to answer people when I can. Um, so 
Um, yeah, uh, it, if you do get an answer on Facebook, it's usually me being a dimwit. Uh, as always, Fred, thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, greatly appreciate it, and um, we will talk again very, very soon. That sounds great, Andrew. Thank you for your time, and we'll speak soon. Yeah, bye for now. Fred Watson, uh, astronomer, and uh, from me, Andrew Dunkley. Thank you as always, and we'll catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.